It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are fans of not getting flu every year. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines, and I'm here without Dr. Nathan Boonstra from Blank Children's Hospital because we put this together pretty quickly with our um, one of our favorite guests, Dr. Paul Offit. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Karen. It's my pleasure. It's always great to talk to you. I know that our podcast listeners really enjoy these episodes with you. Let me just start with explaining that we are here because we're talking about a study that was just released today that makes a correlation between aluminum in childhood vaccines and asthma. So before we dive too deep into that, let's talk a little bit about the role of aluminum in vaccines. So why are we putting this, you know, what we use to wrap up our food when we have leftovers into vaccines? Right, so aluminum salts act as an adjuvant. And what adjuvant means is it allows you to give either fewer doses of a vaccine or lesser quantities of the active ingredient of the vaccine. It enhances the immune response. So we've been using adjuvants like aluminum or aluminum salts in vaccines really since the 1940s. So we have an ex- extensive decades, eight, like roughly 80 years of experience with uh, aluminum salts in vaccines. And we know that they're benign. We know that that like aluminum, first of all, is the most abundant metal on the Earth's crust. It's a light metal. Um, it's it's uh, in the air we breathe. It's in the water we drink. It's in a number of the foods that we eat. There is no avoiding aluminum any more than there's avoiding the, the heavy metals that exist on the Earth's crust. So if you look in the in the bloodstream of, of people who haven't received any vaccines, for example, you're going to find Aluminum, you're going to find also heavy metals like mercury and thallium and beryllium and cadmium and arsenic because we live on the Earth's crust. There is no avoiding that. Um, when we went through this with mercury back in the um, uh, sort of early 19, early 2000s, late 1990s, um, I had to testify at a committee meeting once where uh, one of the congressmen stood up and he said, you know, when it comes to mercury, I have zero tolerance. Well, if you have zero tolerance for mercury, you got to move to another planet because on this planet, there's mercury. And if you ever testified in front of committee hearings, congressmen moving to another planet is actually not the worst idea. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I can think of a few I would like to have moved to another planet. But again, that's not why we're here. Now, this is not the first study that's ever been done on aluminum adjuvants in vaccines. What do we know from previous studies that have been done on aluminum adjuvants um, in vaccines? Right. So the question is, does aluminum uh, that you get in vaccines, because you can make this argument, um, aluminum certainly is in the air that we breathe. It's and it can be absorbed from you know through the lungs. And aluminum is in the, the water that we drink to obviously to a, a less to to a, a in a very small extent. And then it's in some things like uh, anti-caking agents and flowers and, and things like that. So it's in it's it's not in typically unprocessed foods, but it is in a number of things that you would typically come in contact with. An adult an adult human will eat will ingest about seven to nine milligrams of aluminum every day. Uh, about one percent of that is absorbed. 
absorbed. And it's very excre quickly excreted from the, the urine and out, out the body. It's gone usually within 24 hours. The people who get into trouble with aluminum toxicity, because aluminum at high levels can be toxic, are, are, are people who either have kidneys that don't work well or don't work at all. And then they, and they also typically also ingest um, uh, antacids, which contain high quantities of aluminum. That's where you see aluminum toxicities. And when you see those toxicities, they can express themselves as sort of a thinning of the bones and also some bone marrow uh, effects, you know, where it affects the, the blood cells that are made in your bone marrow. Um, and it can affect your brain, causing an encephalopathy. But, you know, we all, again, we all come in contact with aluminum. So the question is then if you get injected with aluminum, because obviously when you ingest aluminum, when you eat aluminum, you'll, you'll take about 1% of that into your bloodstream. Obviously, when you in, inject it, 100% gets into your bloodstream. So wouldn't that be much worse? But again, if you look at people, children who get aluminum vaccines, you can't tell that, they, that they've increased their level of aluminum because it's so quickly excreted from the body and because you always have aluminum in your body anyway, because um, you're always eating aluminum or drinking aluminum. So that sort of begs the question before we get into this study itself, it begs the question, what, what would be the mechanism or how would aluminum cause asthma in a person? Right. So, so the, the um, conjecture in this paper, and, and uh, I think the term study that you used was very generous because I, I think they really they didn't study their issue. But the, the, the conjecture is when you're born, you're born with an allergic bias, if you will. That, that, so, so that, and you're educated, your immune system is educated away from that allergic bias by being exposed to a variety of, of, of viruses and bacteria and parasites and fungi in the, in the body to which you make an immune response and then sort of that educates you away from this allergic bias to a non-allergic bias. So they were said another way, the, the T cells, which are a type of cell in your body that can determine this, the, the allergic bias is a Th2 response, which you're then sort of educating yourself away from with the Th1 response. And, and if you look, for example, in, um, in the developing world, things like uh, skin allergies and asthma are much less common because very early on in the developing world, you're more likely to be colonized with parasites in your intestine. You're more likely to be colonized with bacteria that produce toxins. And so, and so that's why. And, and there was actually a New England Journal of Medicine uh, op-ed piece, an editorial piece uh, long ago that I'll never forget because the title of that, talking about this, um, this so-called hygiene hypothesis that the more uh, sanitation, the higher the level of sanitation in the country or hygiene in the home, then the more likely you are to have these kinds of allergic uh, problems. The title of that uh, op-ed piece was called Eat Dirt, Please. Oh, no. <laughs> so the question is, does this do that? Does aluminum do that? And I would argue that although that was it was conjectured in this paper, there was no evidence to support that, that people who say had more or less aluminum had differences in their Th1 versus Th2 response. It was just kind of thrown out there as a possibility, and that's not good enough. No. So I guess the main weakness of this paper that I've been hearing is that it sort of draws a correlation between two things without showing whether or not there's a real relationship between them. Is that fair? Fair. So I think if you if you have something that you think causes something, it, it would be important to show a biological basis for it. I mean, so for example, um, if you think that, that naturally in being infected with hepatitis B virus, um, causes you to have aplastic anemia, meaning to have a complete shutdown of your bone marrow. You should propose, which has been, that, that sort of thing has been published. You, you should propose a mechanism by which that happens. You can't just make it up, you know. So I think there was a cartoon once where you, there was like somebody drawing something on the blackboard with all these formulas. And then, you know, there was a line that said, and then something happens. 
<laughs> that's not good enough. You have to have like a reason for why that's true. Um, and, and, and most importantly, and this is the most, my, my criticism of this paper really centers on one thing. If you're going to propose that one thing caused another, and you're looking at two different groups, in this case, the group one would be a group that received more aluminum than group two. And you're arguing that that group that received more aluminum in vaccines than group two, that second group, um, have now a higher incidence of asthma because of that. Well, you have to make sure you control for so-called confounding variables. You have to isolate the effect of that one variable so that the only difference between those two groups is the amount of aluminum they received in vaccines. You want to make sure that they're identical in terms of other risk factors like breastfeeding, which can be protective against asthma or a family history of asthma. Imagine that the, the, the and this would be obviously a huge flaw in the study, that the group that received more aluminum also happened to have uh, parents that had a family history or grandparents that had a family history of asthma. You have to control for that, to make sure that the breastfeeding was the same on both sides, that the family history was the same, that the exposure to, to, uh, to pollutants in the air is the same, that where they live matters. Because, you, you know, if you're living in a highly industrialized region and most of your patients or people in the study who, who had higher levels of aluminum lived in more industrialized regions, that's a confounding factor. So you have to make sure that's, that's the same on both groups which they didn't. They didn't do that. They didn't do the one basic thing they needed to do to prove that something was causally associated. Instead, what they did was they sort of said, they said, you know, is associated, uh, not necessarily causally associated, but you can't put that kind of study out there. You can't. It's not, I think that where, where the CDC, I guess, can fall to criticism here, they uh, live under the mantra of transparency. They want to be transparent. They don't want to ever be perceived as hiding something. And so maybe they feared that this so quote unquote association, which was not in any sense made because the right kind of uh, controls weren't uh, weren't uh, um, weren't weren't put in these studies, um, that they would be hiding something. But you know, you're allowed to hide bad data. Really, you're allowed to not be transparent about data that in no way informs the public about whether one thing is associated with another. And I think they they you know they're they're putting out now this this uh, they're talking points and the talking points are that this shouldn't change the way that you um, you know that you vaccinate your children that we but but you know but they've scared people by putting this out there and and, and worse I mean I think a parent say of a child who has asthma may say you know I'm not going to vaccinate my next child or my younger child because of that and in fact the people who have asthma are at higher risk of pneumonia so therefore benefit from vaccines like pneumococcal vaccine or influenza vaccine or COVID vaccines, I mean, the kind of, you know, viruses or bacteria that can cause pneumonia. So, so, it, so you've done more harm than good. You, you've, you've basically violated e your ethos, which is first do no harm. And it's, this to me is thimerosal redux. This is this, what we went through this in the late 1990s, and now we're going through it again. It appears like this lesson hasn't been learned, which is the, the, the concern that, that mercury or ethylmercury, which is a uh, preservative that was in vaccines, was causing harm when there was no evidence that it was. And all that did was scare people and, and did nothing good came of that whole affair other than it created certain anti-vaccine groups. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the mercury, the ethylmercury, concerns and also the autism concerns that slightly preceded that are sort of a lot of things that many of us are looking at right now. And, you, you know, I saw a question being asked today, would it be wise to just not bring up this paper because then it'll call attention to it? But I feel like there are lessons that we learned early on. So, you know, you're obviously on camp, like, let's talk about the flaws in this study from the outset. You know, what would you say to someone who says, I don't know, why don't we just like 
just don't talk about it and people won't notice. Because people do notice. And, and if, you're, if you're not talking about it, it looks like you're hiding something. I think you get out in front of it. You explain what, what the incredible weaknesses of this paper. I mean, this is like, you know, the Andrew Wakefield's quote unquote study where he had 12 children, eight of whom had autism, all within presumably a month of getting an MMR uh, vaccine. And that was supposed to be some sort of proof. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it was that, that study was no, or that paper was no better than having eight children who ate peanut butter sandwiches that within a month of that developed autism. And, you know, you have to, you have to do control groups. You have to, and that was done eventually in, you know, in 18 different studies on seven different countries on three different continents, showing you were no more likely to get autism if you received the MMR vaccine than if you didn't. But you have to make sure that those two groups were the same that the people who got MMR vaccine were the same as people who didn't get it in terms of healthcare seeking behavior, in terms of medical background, in terms of socioeconomic background. So you can isolate the effect of that one variable. That's the way you do those studies and those studies were done. Here, I, I suspect what might happen is there may be then actual real studies that are done looking at this that will, will refute it. But you know, as the, the old Jonathan Swift line is, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after. And that may be what happens here. But I think at the very least we can try and reassure parents that this was a paper that should never be published because it offers nothing to our understanding of vaccines. I'm actually concerned that it was funded in the first place because, you know, one, one, another critique I'm hearing coming out is, oh, this is an observational study, but observational studies can actually be really, really useful if they're set up correctly, as you've pointed out. Um, but, you know, at what point in the funding process should someone say, no, you're not setting this up right, like we're pulling our funding? Well, at the very least, uh, I, and, and we don't live in that world, but in, in, a, in a better world, uh, this would never be published. I think any reasonable journal would look at this and say, you haven't proven a thing. You can't say anything about an association between, in this case, receipt of aluminum and vaccines and asthma because you have not done the appropriate controls. We reject this paper and it gets rejected and rejected and rejected. Sadly, there are a number of journals out there which aren't particularly good, which which where you where you can get a paper published. I think, frankly, you can publish anything these days, sadly. So there isn't that screening that used to be true, I think, maybe. 30 years ago, because <laughs> it's been a while since you've been able to publish. I mean, the, the Lancet published that MMR causes autism paper, which was uh, just uh, not a study. I mean, and just as in that particular study, there were uh, there were basically eight children who had autism within a month of receiving vaccines and 13 authors. You know, you should always have more study subjects than authors. <laughs> well, that is that is quite true. Another thing I, I wanted to ask about this paper was really that, um, you know, the it's not as though the authors of this paper are Andrew Wakefield and Chris Exley and Mark Blaxell or whatever. These are not people who are making a living off of being anti-vaccine by any stretch of the imagination. These are scientists that we could consider to be credible in all sorts of ways. I'm wondering, you know, if you think that there will be criticism of this paper that they'll listen to amend or retract or anything? Um, is that a possibility of what might happen? Uh, one hopes so. I, I mean, the, 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 um, the nature of science is that you probe and probe and probe and, and you get pushback. I mean, the, the, I mean I, my work is in the world of um, rotavirus immunology and virology. And so every year I would present at double-stranded RNA meetings and you'd present your data and people would criticize your data. And, you know, you'd think about it, you know, maybe did I do this the right way? Had I not thought about something? All for the purpose of making better and better studies, more thoughtful studies, more informed studies. And that's good. That's science working at its best, which is that that you, you know, you can 
call into question um, things, and 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 that's that's the way science works. That should be the way it works here. I mean, hopefully, people that the people who publish this study, if it does get, I assume it's going to get published, that they that they listen to those criticisms and respond to those criticisms. And then the best response would be to do the right kind of studies, which they haven't done. It's also interesting. Remember, if you look at people. Who um, who really do suffer aluminum toxicity, which is usually people who have, uh, who want to say chronic uh, dialysis because their kidneys don't work, or also taking in acids. I mean, asthma is not one of the consequences of that toxicity. Right, and asthma is something that really deserves some serious study. So you know, in addition to increasing vaccine hesitancy and increasing vaccine refusal at a time when, you know, that possibility is perilous anyhow because of how politicized everything's gotten. We also then have sort of this not taking seriously the factors that could really be contributing to asthma, such as pollution, the air our children are breathing, especially in, you know, their school buildings, which, you know, even after COVID still need better filtration. So that that was actually, that wasn't a question at all to you, but you know, that that's sort of how, how I see it. And I am really concerned though, that, that there will be this pushback against routine vaccines now that will be not just about well, I don't like the COVID vaccine because my political ideology tells me not to, so I'm going to decide not to like any vaccines. But now this is sort of fuel to that fire as well, that see, it's going to make my kid have asthma. I don't. I think, I think that's already happened. I think that, that there was really never a politics to sort of uh, the anti-vaccine movement. I mean, the left, it was, um, you know, all things natural, don't put anything into my body that's unnatural, like, you know, additives or manufacturing residuals or preservatives or whatever. And on the right, it was, you know, government off my back, don't tell me what to do. I think now you're seeing much more um, of this anti-vaccine activity being embraced by the right. And what I worry about is that the pushback against COVID vaccine mandates is going to be a pushback against all vaccine mandates. And if that was true, if we if I think if you ask anti-vaccine activists what you want, I think they would say, I don't want vaccines to be mandated. I want to make my own decisions and, and do that. And we'll be right back where we were in the 1960s and 70s when uh, measles reigned until we really got it under control by by essentially having school school vaccine mandates and eliminate mandates. And these diseases will come back. And you just saw a case of polio in New York. And, and don't take that lightly uh, that that when you see paralysis caused by this particular virus, which is a type two vaccine revertant virus that's circulating throughout the world now, that can only happen in an undervaccinated population. And assume that he represents, because he was paralyzed by this virus, only about one in 2,000 people who are infected with this particular mm-hmm. strain will be paralyzed by it. So assume there's another 2,000 people out there who are infected with this virus. And if you, if you think that the New York wastewater is a problem, look at wastewater everywhere in this country, and you're going to find these, these kinds of strains. That's why you have to keep polio vaccine rates high, or else you'll see this disease come back. And, and that is not a disease you want to see come back. As a child of the 1950s, uh, having ex- seen, seen polio up close, uh, that is not a disease mm-hmm. you want to see come back. Yeah, you were in the polio ward um, as a child, right. not with polio, but... Right, but I saw that. I mean, I saw kids in, in iron lungs, and I saw... The thing that I most remember, actually, was the so-called Sister Kenny treatments. I don't know if you remember this, but it was it was these hot packs that they would apply to various uh, limbs, muscles and limbs, and they, they were excruciatingly hot, and, and these children would scream out. And, you know, this was maybe 20 kids in a ward, kids were in iron lungs, kids were screaming because of the hot packs, there was one visiting hour a week. I mean, it's not like there were therapy dogs and iPads and your child and your parents lying next to you. I mean, there was only one visiting hour a week. And it was just, 
it was hell. Uh, literally, it wasn't like hellish. It was hell. I think I was in hell for six weeks when I was five years old. Oh, gosh. I just, that's, I mean, that's so much. And the amazing thing is that you were able to turn that into your own passion for pediatrics. And, you know, which really leads to concern about having been through that and then the thimerosal ex- experience um, and having battled you know, the Wakefield acolytes all these years and then going through COVID, then to come to this point where it's, you know, are we going to have people who want us to remove aluminum from vaccines? What would be the consequences of us saying, okay, no more aluminum adjuvants in vaccines? That's not possible. You would be eliminating certain vaccines. Yeah. You, would, you would have to go back to ground zero. I mean, when you were basically when you try to eliminate thimerosal from vaccines, what you did was you shifted basically multi-dose vials to single-dose vials. So you made vaccines much more expensive with no gain in terms of mm-hmm. safety um, and made it more difficult than for, for vaccines in the developing world. That's what you did there. You can't go back and try and find either different adjuvants or, because now you're talking about a new product. And that's, you know, costs often a billion dollars to make a new product. And companies aren't going to do that. I mean, company, first of all, vaccines are not big money makers for these companies. They're often less than 10% of what they do. I mean, we went from 27 vaccine makers in 1955 to 18 vaccine makers in 1980 to four vaccine makers today. It's not a lucrative thing. And, and to make it more expensive, make it more difficult. And you'll just see companies abandoning vaccines for America's children. Right. And I think, Paul, I really think that is the end goal of the anti-vaccine movement. I don't think it's just about mandates. I really think it's about I don't want anyone getting vaccinated. I'm against vaccines for anybody, not just me. Um, It's not about medical freedom or, you know, freedom of, you know, over their bodies at all. They really are against the idea of vaccines existing. I agree. I think that's exactly right. And then what did they gain? Then we get to go back where, where we were in the 19, in 1900. Yeah, that's, I, there's so many reasons I don't want to go back there. And, you know, obviously, children dying before the age of five is first among them. So I want to go back to just one more study, and that is the um, blood and hair aluminum levels vaccine history and early infant development across sectional study. So what did that tell us about aluminum in vaccination? Well, so, so there was no correlation between the level of blood or hair aluminum and, and problems regarding uh, development, um, which tells you what you would imagine, which is that, you know, you live on a planet where aluminum is common. Um, people eat and drink and inhale aluminum. You can't find anything having to do with vaccines that affects that affects that. But more importantly, uh, the level of aluminum that you're typically exposed to doesn't cause any any sort of developmental problems for the same reason that the level of mercury that you're exposed to typically in the environment or, or thallium or cadmium or beryllium or arsenic affects you either. We're all exposed to those trace trace amounts. But I think we have trouble accepting that. I think when you if you tell people that you have trace amounts of arsenic in your bloodstream, knowing that high quantities of arsenic can be fatal, that scares people. And it shouldn't because it's okay to have have levels of these these uh, metals, either heavy or light metals that are not harmful because there's no avoiding it. And I think that that's what this this uh, study is very reassuring that you're not likely to uh, that, that, that there is no correlation between aluminum and blood and hair and any sort of developmental problems. So the main study that we're talking about, the one that makes the correlation, really reminds me of that Spurious Correlations website that links things like 
Nicolas Cage movies to the number of shark attacks, for example, that you can make a correlation between any two things. And I really liked um, when I was talking to Erica Dewald about this earlier this week, she said that the study basically says kids get vaccines, vaccines have aluminum, and kids get asthma or have asthma. And that's all the study says. Vaccines don't prevent asthma. They don't prevent everything else that occurs in life either, except for vaccine preventable diseases. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, you might be thinking your kid is perfect and I got some bad news for you. <laughs> your child is first and foremost a human being and the human body is not perfect. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. Um, it was great chatting with you. I always like talking to you anyhow. And I have to say, this is the first time I've ever seen your, your floor behind you in the daylight and it is so pretty. Like I can't stop looking how lovely your floor is, which I don't know if you've noticed that it is a very lovely floor thank you very much and 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 for you at home that that rug is from pottery barn oh so we're clear all <laughs> right very nice and thank you to everybody for joining us um, my name is karen ernst um, the executive director of voices for vaccines you can find us at voicesforvaccines.org and nathan boonstra is not here but you can find him at pedsgeekmd.org to learn more visit 